welcome to Downton Gabby. We are back because Gilded Age is back and we are excited to dive into all of the drama. I am Shannon in Seattle. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Teresa in Toronto. Teresa in Toronto, our foreign correspondent. I'm in the British Commonwealth now, so I feel just like one little bit closer to Julian being here. Well, you're definitely the most sophisticated person on the podcast now, for sure. Absolutely. And possibly the coldest. (laughs) (laughs) So I rewatched the finale and then watched the premiere And I had completely blocked out Marianne completely from my brain. And like my, my mind did a protective gesture to just eliminate her from my memory. And I was so jarred to see her stupid simpering face again. I was like, oh yeah. You don't every once in a while just get a vision of her standing on the stoop, holding that bag of shoes and just be like, why? (laughs) I rewatched the entire first season because it's like that. And Oddly enough, Marion didn't bother me as much as she did the first time through. However, Mr. Rakes, who thank God is not coming back this season, um, her her suitor, mm-hmm. every time he came on screen, I fast forwarded it. And for all of the Rakes fans out there, I am sorry, but come on. I kind of enjoyed the watching the first season again and I had had a lot of issues with it the first time around but watching it this time I I quite enjoyed it and I felt like I got sort of a deeper dive into these characters because I think that's what was so good about Downton is there was just depth right away and this one just felt very surface level so I that is curious to me that you felt like there was more depth on the second rewatch well Okay, let me let me clarify. <laughs> Bertha's only line is, I'm going to get into society and this is the way to do it. Like, this is basically all she says. Yeah, in a different way every time. In a different way, in a different frock. Agnes, likewise, disapproves of something. Old money, new money, in a different frock, but not as many different frocks as Bertha. So that really hasn't changed. Yeah, so Brandy, did you watch the last episode? No, I mean, I watched the HBO's previously on the Gilded Age. And I was like, oh yeah, her. Oh yeah, him. I have a theory on why I sort of felt like it was better, uh, richer this time. It's because I binge the whole thing. When you're watching it once a week and you've been waiting a whole week, Mm. when you're watching them one after the other, the story's just moving along, moving along, moving along. Yeah. And I think that that is the way to watch this series because it will feel richer. Well, some shows do work better that way. So I think that's a valid comment. And now I wish I had rewatched it and binged it because I'm wondering, yeah, maybe the repetition feels more like momentum mm. when it's a binge situation. I do have to hand it to Bertha though. She was right. And she did win and she did get in. I mean, she might've said the same thing over and over again, but rewatching the finale, it was like her strategy to cut out the daughter from the dance troupe fucking worked. The payoff moments are great. Like the, the I loved the final scene of this premiere with the opera singer and all of that and how, how satisfied Bertha was with herself and all the sly glances she was getting. But like, that's just one scene out of the whole thing. Like I kind of want to see her enacting her schemes, even if it ruins the surprise. Like, I feel like that's where the depth of the character is in what she's actually doing. And we never really see her actually doing things, only talking about what she might do in vague terms. And then there's a reveal. I want to see her like 
down at the telegram office contacting the person. Like, I want to know how she pulled it off. I want to see the how, not just the what. Oh, you want a letter. You want a Julian letter, don't you? <laughs> well, okay. So we kind of started at the end, but let's go back to the beginning and talk about the hats. Oh my God. I'll live for it every day. Did everyone pick a favorite? I'm embarrassed to say this, but I kind of like Marion's hat. Okay. Well, you can exit the podcast. So bye. I mean, I love Bertha's because it's the most ostentatious. I'm going to start another podcast and invite all the cool people to my podcast. I mean, Marion's outfit was her outfits were better. I felt like in this, like she wore a couple sharp things. But the, I, I mean, I was just like, oh, Mary Poppins, as soon as I saw her Easter outfit. It was just flat on Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. I feel like my favorite outfit of the show was the one that Bertha was wearing in the first scene in Newport, the like oh, loved blue it. And white one. Yes. That was really cool. Really cool. Yes. I literally said that out loud to my husband who didn't care, but I was like, that is a really good outfit. <laughs> it was cool. Like I kind of was like, oh my God, it's like yeah. modern yet like fancy, uh, demure. Like, I don't know. It was just like hidden on all cylinders for me. It was a great outfit. I mean, I really in in general like the Newport clothes. Mm-hmm. And also I appreciated that it didn't have these like pieces of fabric sort of all over the place, which some of her dresses have a lot of weird like sashy kind of thing. It was edited. It was edited. It was clean. It, it did kind of make me laugh the way that they also include like some of the men putting on their top hats. And I was just like, ah, no one gives a shit about your stupid top hat. Get back to the women's hats. I was hoping that some of the guys would have put some flowers or a ribbon or something, you know, on their hats. These are serious railroad men, serious railroad men and closeted gay men who cannot wear a ribbon. Okay. They're trying to bust up the unions. They can't wear a daisy in their hat. Yeah, this is brilliant editing. Like every hat box opening and someone pulls out a hat one after the other. And then people are putting on their hats one after the other. It was really great. I thought it was just a great, fun way to start the series. And also remind us about how much people spend on their clothes kind of um and i love the candy colored outfits well it's like give the people what they want we're here for the fashion i mean people change clothes like five or six times during this premiere and i'm here for it i want to forget the world i want to live in this world for an hour i want to look at your hats and your beautiful dresses and not think about anything else i love all these people putting on their colorful clothes and then peggy's family putting on their morning clothes And you don't really know what's happened yet, but obviously something has happened. Then seamlessly moving from one church to another in a great way to once again, like reinforce the different groups of people. I would have liked a little bit more of the downstairs folks and their vibe. I mean, we we saw them a little bit, but I feel like it wasn't quite, maybe it was because there was so much contrast with what was going on with Peggy and and then the folks who were still in New York kind of all blended into one. Um, but I, I think there's something there about like the juxtaposition between the downstairs folks, like Easter Sunday best, this would be the best clothes they own versus just another new outfit for the rich people. Like they could have kind of done something cool there. Yeah. That's, I was always really aware of that watching Downton Abbey when the, you know, the staff, the servants put on their best clothes, you know, for the fair, or to go into town. Yeah, I love those moments. I think it, it really tells you a lot about the uh, the character, what their like 
one or two suits of clothes that aren't a uniform look like. And they always look so proud and happy in their clothes, which was always really nice. I'm actually not super happy about the Peggy storyline. I was like, was this just going to be a tragedy storyline forever? Like, I don't really know why we just found out about the kid and now the kid's dead. Mm -hmm. I'm a little suspicious of that. And also like, I don't want the only non-white people to just be a tragedy story. And so that kind of bummed me out and worried me for the rest of the season. Now she was kind of like, there was like some sparks between her and the guy that lost the wife and kid. I'm not really sure. It's not my imagination. I felt the same thing. Oh, there was like chemistry. So I was like, okay, if this is going to like, put a love interest in her storyline, but I just thought it was really strange to like, we're going to have this huge life-changing thing happen. Oh, but they're dead. Like, I don't know. It just seemed kind of like a cop-out. And then it was like, yeah, can't these people find happiness too? Or is there just going to be that tragic? Well, and to have all of that happen sort of in between seasons, because I'm just like that, that would have been, if you're going to do a tragedy, like show me the scene where like her hope turns into crushing despair show me the first conversation she had with her father after this reveal that like he was too late to give her son back to her like the aftermath not that the actors didn't do a fine job like that that obviously all three of them in that family are great actors and really play well together but like they could they obviously could have pulled off the the instant tragedy not just the like reflection upon it that that we got here yeah it was almost a little confusing too because you're right like there's that you could have really wrung out the tragedy i didn't cry once and i should be crying over this. oh i should be sobbing like i got a little tear when it was like oh his favorite toy and then i was like oh i hope they have a photograph of him and then they gave her the photograph and then that was that kind of got me um but yeah there were some really interesting moments there like especially when she was like oh I would have tried to take him from you and and he was like I wouldn't have blamed you like that's fascinating dynamic that we didn't really get to play with so I yeah again just why introduce something so bleak if you're not gonna actually do it I feel like they needed to take a note from call the midwife call the midwife was always good at that of like, you know, it was basically a procedural, right? We got one to two stories every episode, but they could make you sob. Oh yeah. They knew how to just turn the knife. And I just felt like, yeah, that was just felt like a big missed opportunity to me. And especially when you have three powerhouse actors, Peggy and her parents, they're all really good actors. Yeah. John Douglas Thompson, who plays her dad, Arthur. I mean, he played Claudius in Shakespeare in the Park um, just this past season. Oh, I bet that's good. He's a brilliant actor. They're all outstanding. I felt like last season, some of the best scenes were theirs. Yeah. Because the quality of the acting was so incredible. And and I, and I have to say that the going to Philadelphia with the dead son and all of that to me felt kind of stilted. I think it's a writing issue for sure. Like I feel like they did the best with what they were given and it was just too confusing. Like you're, you're trying to catch up with things while they're playing these deep emotions. Like that was, that was a, it, I was sitting there being like, did I forget something from the finale? I know, Are we really yeah. just learning all of this now? And I just watched the finale and I was like, did I miss it? Like, yeah, it was, 
you shouldn't feel as someone who's watching a show that you miss something. Like this show isn't Severance, okay? We're, it's not a thinking show. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us if they're alive or dead and what hat they're wearing. Yeah. That's what we're here for. It's also interesting because obviously I felt like the opening montage worked mostly as far as like here's sort of a frivolous affair that's going on and then here's something very serious going on in another city. But then later you have Peggy and Marion having lunch together. And that's really the main bridge on the show between the two worlds. And I was just like, they don't match. Like Peggy has real problems and Marion is doing what? Like teaching a watercolor class that people don't approve of? Like not the same. They're not on the same level. It didn't work for me, their meetup. Are you glad that um, Peggy's moving back to uh, West 61st Street? I mean, yeah, because I think that her and Mrs. Van Ryan are a fun dynamic together. And, you know, if she's going to be in the mix, let's get her in the mix. It feels like lazy writing, though. It's like, oh, bring her back. But that kind of, I mean, that kind of stuff happens on soapy shows. Like you go away, you come back, you, you break up, you get back together. Like that that doesn't necessarily bother me so long as, you know, it branches off in a different direction the second time around. I also like, speaking of love interests, I, I liked that guy from the paper. Oh, yeah. Oh, T. Thomas Fortune? Yeah, right? He was hot. So, I mean, if we do get a little love interest between like hot, fiery guy and sad, nice guy, like I, I could, I could be into that. Oh, yeah. I mean, those, that editor's biceps, I mean, what's going on? It's like, <laughs> this guy, this guy's running a paper. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, cranking that press. Crank that press. I mean, those shirts are struggling to keep those biceps in. <laughs> I know we didn't really get anything too sexy in this opener. So, I mean, we didn't even get to see, you know, a hot union busting husband. What the fuck's his name? <laughs> George Russell. Yeah. We didn't really get to see him in his dressing gown or anything you know there's like nothing oh george in his dressing gown is really magical isn't it big beard i love it he's still one of the best parts of the show and their relationship is so wonderful to see i mean i almost would love to see bertha employ peggy hmm. you know combination to you know they're both outsiders in different ways they're both ambitious strong women poach the secretary from across the street fuck yeah That'd be cool. First the butler, then the secretary. Mm-hmm. Pull on. Mm-hmm. I don't think Bertha would be as nice and respectful to Peggy as um, Agnes is. I don't know. I don't think she would go out of her way to... I think she would treat her the same as she treats all the other servants. Like, I don't think she would necessarily treat her worse. But she's not in the habit of making pals with people below her. That's for sure. Whereas Agnes doesn't really care. All the staff are loyal to her. I noticed that on the finale rewatch... Everybody was very protective of her in this party. Yeah, but how much of that is just what Julian thinks servants think about their people? Wow. Okay, that's the million-dollar question, Brandy. I mean, is that realistic? Is that earned? Or is that just Julian being like, of course the little people love the elites. You know you're watching a Julian Fellows show when the servants sit around and talk about how wonderful the, you know, that is that is the hallmark of a Julian joint, honestly. And are happy to sacrifice all kinds of things, including their job, Hello Jane. Yes. So this season is shaping up to be the battle of the opera boxes. Are those the stakes? I'm here for it. I'm so, I love a petty ass war. 
and it's the war of the opera boxes. Like literally when that was set up like at the end and I was like, yeah, I'm here. Buckle up. I'm ready. Who's going to win? Shannon, what did you say? The boxes and bustles? Boxes and bustles. I have to say, I'm going to jump to the end again, but going through the whole show and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then when Christina Nielsen comes out to sing her Faust, I had a huge smile on my face. I actually yelled, Cobra, you're badass. What do you think the like equivalent of that is? Like if you were in a, in a society war these days, is that like getting- Like Taylor Swift or Beyonce or something. Yeah, is that like yeah. getting Taylor Swift or Beyonce to show up at yeah, your party? Yeah, that's what I took it as, yeah. And in terms of badassery, when you feel like someone's done you dirty, like Taylor Swift re-recording all of her music. Yeah. Taylor's version. Oh, yeah, that's good. It was great, just great because it took me by surprise i don't know one of my favorite things about the episode i guess getting into like where is the slight amount of depth for bertha was the little asides that she had with the various other women women back then they couldn't hold positions of power they could hold an opera box i'm an ambitious person so i love ambition in women and i just i love that she's just like yeah sometimes we're friends sometimes we're in opposition but i'm always going to respect you but i'm going to get what's owed to me and I'm going to work hard for it. You know what I would really like, though? I would like to spend more than 15 seconds per dress. She wears the most exquisite, exquisite gowns. And we don't get nearly enough time. And she doesn't wear them more than once. At least in, in Downton Abbey, they wore their clothes over and over again. Here, it's like, could I have, like, maybe 30 more seconds? Yeah, that's that's Julian's pacing thing, where everything has to be quick-cutting to the next scene. Well, and everybody on Downton was more poor. <laughs> Seriously! Well, at least they weren't trying to show off the money. I mean, yeah, but no, they had multiple storylines on Downton about being like, we need to cut back on the estate. Yeah, they didn't have the extravagance that Bertha has. I, I understand why they do it, but I still, I, I literally, another 30 seconds. You're totally right, Teresa. Like, it's just like, let me take it in. When I was looking at the Easter scene and like a thousand extras walking through the streets and each one of them had to have a historically correct uh, impeccable dress and yeah. hat. And it's like all of that work, all of that labor, all of the materials, all the designs, all of it. And you see it from far away. I know. I haven't I haven't read the Tom and Lorenzo piece on the premiere yet, but that's usually where I get my sort of like time to bask in these things is they'll have taken all the screenshots and they'll comment on things. Can we talk about Oscar? I liked him better here. I empathized with him more. I don't know. I don't want to see him and his boyfriend break up, but I don't know. Like, it, they felt like they had more depth to me in this episode, if we're going to keep coming back to who has depth and who doesn't. I felt for him looking across the lawn in front of church and seeing John Adams walking with some other dude. And then in the bar, I wasn't quite sure what was happening in the bar, but when he comes home and he's been beaten up, I felt I felt bad for him. And I felt bad for him in a way that all of those discussions he and his boyfriend had over dinner, you know, about being discreet, really are nothing compared to getting the shit kicked out of you. And I think that he also seemed kind of grateful for his family to be there and taking care of him. And I think he and Marion are just going to become best friends. But it was nice when John Adams came to visit and he said, you know, we'll always be friends. And I don't know, it was all good. But then he's back sniffing around Gladys. He's so much older than her, it creeps me out. I think they cast him a little too old. 
I think it's not supposed to work though. Like I think we're supposed to be going, no, Gladys, no. There's a little scene where Gladys and Carrie are talking about him and giggling, which also makes me think that they just think it's Yeah, silly. giggling in a sort of like, oh, this guy, he has a crush on you, but you would never kind of way. Yeah, I don't, I'm a, I don't know where that's really, I'm, I'm trying to imagine like where that's going to go over the season. And I'm, I don't trust Julian to really do anything interesting with it. Um, maybe bring in another guy that Bertha does approve of. Oh, I have, I have all kinds of theories about that guys. First of all. Okay. I've marked this in our little agenda as, um, Teresa's nerdy aside part one. Um, so Bertha is modeled on Alva Vanderbilt. So she was, she was exactly like Bertha, like the, like Mrs. Astor did not want Mrs. Vanderbilt in because she was new money and um and she founded the metropolitan opera and so that would make gladys her daughter consuelo vanderbilt and consuelo vanderbilt is famous because she married the duke of marlborough and i think she was one of the first heiresses american heiresses to marry royalty that was completely bankrupt and bring her money over so she was a cora she was a cora Exactly. And she was meant to be a Cora in Julian's original thinking about the show. Right, right. Literally. Literally, literally. And in the preview for, for I don't know if it's for the next episode, but at some point, um, they introduced the Duke of Buckingham. So I know, I, I'm sure the Duke of Buckingham is what Bertha has in mind for the, a good match for her daughter so she can become a duchess. Oh, for sure. She's clearly been just waiting for some royal to come about. More trivia. The Duke of Marlborough's brother married Jenny and she became Jenny Churchill. She was also an American heiress and she is the mother of Winston Churchill. Ooh. I can like see that happening for, for Gladys, whether like she gets pushed into it or not. Gladys wants to live a quiet life. And for Oscar... There is this publicity photo of him walking around with some mystery woman. I don't know who it is. Have you seen this photo? Mm-mm. He's outside with this woman and they're strolling. I don't know who it is, but it makes me think that like he's going to give up on Gladys because George Russell's going to do another, uh, you know, Archie on him. I just feel like it's bad strategy for him. Like he should be targeting someone who's like reaching spinster age and will be grateful for anyone's attention and who can, you know, maybe do a little like, like he should be looking for a beard. You know, there's gotta be plenty of women who are like, Oh, no one's ever going to marry me. And then would be grateful for someone who's from a respectable family, regardless, you know? Yeah. I think he liked Gladys cause he thought she was an innocent and she wouldn't notice that he was gay. <laughs> You're not innocent forever. <laughs> then also bad strategy. Cause even innocents get older and learn more things. You know, <laughs> like... Bertha has bought a big ass house in Newport. And I guess that, that um, Larry's dad finally came to terms with him being an architect, which again happened off screen. Yeah. Too much off screen. But, but anyway, so he's been renovating the house for them, changing the angle of the light, whatever that means. Ward McAllister then says to Larry that there's this widow who lives in this big house that needs some help, you know, fixing it up or something. And I'm thinking this widow's going to be some young, hot woman. And again, in the previews, I swear I saw some, very quick shots of Larry making out with somebody. I kind of forgot Larry existed, so I don't know if I really care about his love interest. But if it's a scandal, then that could be interesting. It's going to be a scandal. Yeah, I think so. 
but it's all very mysterious. So I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's weird to say that we could use some new blood on a show that has way too many characters. <laughs> I mean, well, he's just boring. <laughs> he's too nice. He's like so cheerful. It's like, get an edge. You know what though? Like he's, he's a sweetie. His dad is a complete asshole. Not to his kids, but like in the world. Right. Bertha's a conniving, scheming social climber. And it's kind of nice that they produce two <laughs> nice kids. Okay, but I like Bertha and George, even though they're bad. Nice is boring. Yeah, nice is boring. If you're going to be nice, then you have to be nice like Sybil on Downton. You have to be like rebellious nice. Your open-minded niceness has to be causing problems for other people. Otherwise, I don't know why you're here. Yeah, he's just nice to other rich people. It's not that interesting. There's no rebellion in it. That's true, except that he wanted to be an architect and not an industrialist who drives people to suicide. But it, but that, again, it, anything that happened with that happened off screen. The tone of the industrialist scenes is also really weird to me because it's almost like mm -hmm. we're supposed to be feeling for the rich guys. And I'm like, I don't I don't feel like Julian's pulling off whatever social commentary he thinks he might be doing about, you know, the plight of the working man during the Gilded Age. I think he thinks he's doing something, but he's not doing something. No, because we like George too much. Like, I don't want his business to suffer, which is not how I should be feeling about a fucking railroad baron during this era. But they want an eight-hour workday. It's just outrageous. Safety conditions? Safety conditions? Right, like, I don't think Julian's going to pull off the kind of social commentary that something like Succession does about like the elites that you're you're rooting for in some ways but who you realize are terrible terrible people the whole time like it's such a tight line to walk this is not satire this is a soap right like you're supposed to be either rooting for somebody or rooting against them you're not supposed to be considering all of these elements at least not the way that julian writes it. it's genuine like a hallmark movie is genuine it's not like hallmark movies are like oh isn't this ridiculous that my whole happiness hinges on whether i get this gingerbread cookie every year it's like that is my life i live for a tree lighting sincere it is sincere and i and i do like that but it's it's a problematic subject matter to be so sincere about. Right. Yeah, I also didn't always love it when Downton would start talking about, like, people who tilled the land for them and all of that. I, it, it always felt a little out of place when all of a sudden we're talking to the pig farmer or whatever. Right, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah, the pig farmer. And now you must give up this child because... <laughs> right, and then in the end they just fuck over the pig farmer anyway. <laughs> yeah, so. you have to leave now because it's too disturbing. I know. Right, so I'm like, unless Gladys is going to fall in love with one of these union guys, like, I don't know where we're going with this, you know? I'll reserve my judgment because I'm not against talking about the realities of how they made their money. I just don't necessarily trust the tone uh, or the direction of the storyline. Julian's not one to be known for nuance and social justice issues. Like, this is the guy who turned an Irish revolutionary into an elite on Downton, right? So, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he did. You know, so I don't necessarily trust what his end game is going to be with any story that touches on that sort of issue. Let's have an up or down vote. Did you like, did you like this episode? Yeah, did I did. Thumb up. 
I felt like I enjoyed it. And like, if I'm going to be honest, like I threw it on when I was kind of in like a terrible mood and it was just like good escapism. Like it was like a distraction and I felt sort of soothed at the yeah. end of it. <laughs> As if I had, you know, someone had been like stroking my hair or that's something. What it's <laughs> like, that's like, that's its purpose, right? So we're we're attempting a level of analysis that is maybe not actually like reflected in the you know, gravitas of the project, but you know, it was, it was a little bit of a, a, a balm. Absolutely. It's what we need in these times. I put it in the same category as a Hallmark movie. Yeah. I just wish some of the stakes were a little higher. Oh, absolutely. I just wish that the biggest conflict was not the new opera house versus the old opera house. Do you want Marion to be teaching art at a university instead of a high school? Yes, I do. Sometimes. Yeah, okay. I mean, Marion's big secret is she's teaching watercolor at some rich person's school. I knew it was going to be something really stupid when they had that conversation at lunch, but I I wasn't quite prepared for how stupid. Um, and I don't know. I think so, sometimes these storylines that are hinged only on like the social expectation don't work as well for me as like a contemporary viewer, right? Like, because I'm kind of like, what's the big whoop? Yeah. You know, I'm with her on that. So that's where we need, like, that's where we need more depth in the relationship between her and Agnes. Because when I look at Agnes and I'm like, okay, does she know the truth about her son? Maybe she does, but she still loves him. And now she has Marion, who could also be the future of their family. They're the only young people of their generation. Like, like there's more depth that could be there as far as like what her expectations are and why they're so high for her, other than just we're old money and this is not what we do. And I'm I'm inventing all of that in my head because it's just not there on the screen or in the script. One thing I will say about um, rewatching all of season one. I really liked Agnes. Like I know that she's got that one line that she has to say over and over again, but she's pretty smart and she does give off this vibe of, I ruined my life to save my family. This is sort of a tragic thing around her. Oh yeah. I loved her line at the church where she was like, I wasn't even on a first name basis with my own husband. Yes. Those little glimpses between her and Ada and what they went through when they were younger are always super interesting to me. Every once in a while, they mention the Civil War. Peggy's dad was enslaved. Right. Every time I think of that and that goes through my head watching their scene, it is really moving. Mm -hmm. Like all of the stuff he's carrying around with him. Yeah. So they are carrying a lot with them. And sometimes if the actor's, you know, really good, you sort of see it. I. I don't so much get that from Bertha. Like, I know she comes from modest means, and I believe her mother uh, picked potatoes in Ireland, but I'm not feeling it. No, not not the way that I feel it in those small moments with Ada and Agnes. And even like, I thought Cynthia Nixon was very strong in the scene at the end when she finally asked Marion how she felt about rakes. Which, by the way, it was insane that nobody said anything about that in the moment that happened. <laughs> but I was like, that was so cold and weird. Yeah, right. Um, but when she finally asked her about it and was talking about, you know, having having lived a life without love, basically, um, I thought that was that was a very yeah. sad and touching moment. And I, I just like those those moments where it's really about like the life and the opportunities of a woman in this era who've gone through what they've gone through. Like even a woman of means has not been able to make her own choices. 
Yeah, it's like Ada's so interesting. She's independent because she doesn't have a husband and children. Right. But she's trapped in dependence on her sister. Rewatching the finale, I also really enjoyed Ada more than I remembered of that she has a lot of compassion in her, which is missing in a lot of characters. She's sort of set up as this meek little spinster, but she's not because she's constantly giving people a piece of her mind and helping Marion. And I think you have to pay attention to her to understand everything that she is. Because um, it's easy to dismiss her. Um, as long as we're talking about Ada, should we talk about the new rector? Uh, yeah, Brandy, did you watch the next time on? I know you don't usually no, watch No, I turned it off. I don't okay, watch spoiler. Previews. Then we won't say. That's all right. You can spoil it. It's just like, as a rule, I just, I don't watch previews. Yeah, I know. You've got your morals, whatever. <laughs> we watched it. Go for it, Therese. Well, first of all, when the rector, when I first shot at the rector, I'm like, who is that? I know who that is. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? It's Robert Sean Leonard. Of course. That was amazing. No, I don't know who that is. You don't know who, <laughs> have you ever seen Dead Poet Society, among many other oh, things? Oh, yeah. But I guess it's been a while. Was he in House forever as like the number two person? Anyway, he's just been an actor for a long time and I know him as a young guy. Um, so it took me a while to recognize him. It looks like he, the rector is going to be a love interest for Ada. That just like never occurred to me because having grown up Catholic, like I forget that there are religions where clergy people can just like openly date someone. <laughs> I'm just like, what? A scandal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other other religions are normal. Sorry. Yeah, it's not a scandal. Remember the second sons in all of Victorian literature? Exactly. And Ada's perfect for a second son. Let's get real. They all become vicars. That's right. She would do so great overseeing the parish. But I was like definitely thinking like whether um, Mrs. Bauer, you know, their cook has to learn how to make um, New England clam chowder now for when the rector comes over for dinner. You know that's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. They're going to... They're going to give him clam chowder for dinner and he's going to fall deeply in love. The other match that they seem to be edging towards is Marion with her cousin by marriage. Yeah, that was that was slightly interesting to me. Like he didn't seem completely boring. I was very distracted by the fact that the, his daughter was a little girl from Station Eleven. Yes, I was going to say, Randy, did you recognize her? Because I looked at her and I was like, Oh my God, who is that? And Sean immediately was like, Oh my God, that's the girl from Station Eleven. I'm obsessed with her. I was like, She has to be a bigger character. That was what made me think they were going to be bigger characters because I was like, Because she's such a good actress and she's been already been a major character on an HBO show. She's not going to be just popping into the Gilded Age. I hope not because I love her. I think she's so great. And I had that same reaction. I saw her face and it was like, I know her. I know her. Where do I know her from? Kirsten. I'm going to say she was the best actor on Station Eleven. A show full of great actors, full of great actors, but like, yeah. So I'm just like, she can't just be some polite, cute little girl. For two seconds, no. Let's get her dark backstory. I'm ready. We do digress, but I, I mean, that's just one of those shows, kind of like Downton, where every time I see an actor from it on something else, I'm going to get excited. I'm going to be like, oh my God, they were on Station Eleven. I mean, remember we all watched Godless? Okay. Oh, yeah. I, will, I mean, I will sit I will sit through a lot if Michelle Dockery is in it. Michelle, if you're out there, call me. I have scripts. You should do them. Okay, so you asked in the agenda, Teresa, do we miss Mrs. Chamberlain, Jean Triplehorn's character from season one? 
I mean, at least she had a scandal in her backstory. This is what I'm looking for. I need more scandal, like real scandal, not watercolor scandal. No, I mean, she was good. Like she had real scandal. And the fact that Marion befriended her was a real scandal. And then the fact that um, Mrs. Fane had to go to her home to warn Marion was also such a big scandal for Mrs. Fane. So I thought that was all pretty great. I, I don't miss her, though. Like, I think she she did her thing and she had a really good arc. And I think that that's fine. We've missed a huge shocker, you guys. How have we not talked about this? The shocker reveal is that George's valet, he's been stalking this woman through season one, like sort of looking at her longingly, but that's all we ever get. And then we find out that the woman is his daughter. Dun, dun, dun. No, I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was like a former lover or something. So then it was almost like creepy when she was like, that's my father. I was so happy about him that he got to decant the wines. <laughs> I'm rooting for him. It's a real Carson moment for him that he got to do that. Like the like the Carson Thomas relationship that's happening there. And I, I mean, I literally just busted out laughing when he was like, I think I might have decanted too much of the claret. <laughs> better too much than too little like i was just like you know what i just feel like that storyline is not that uh interesting i'm way more invested in the fake french chef that's from idaho i love that or kansas wherever he's from but i love it i love the scene of them making fun of him i was like oh because you know you would never let that go well i think that this is really interesting because, you know, Julian doesn't usually have surprises. Like, you know, we've had all these theories through through the whole run of Downton Abbey that, you know, like Aunt Rosamond is actually Edith's mother, which I'm still standing by. OK, I'm standing by it. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's good. But we don't. But we knew that that would never happen because Julian doesn't write that way. There aren't any like big reveals. But we've we've had a few like kind of fun ones. And. I think that that's kind of nice. But I mean, he's trying, but he's not good at the build up to the reveal, you know, because that's just not, it's not usually how he writes. Usually it's like we get the scandal and then a lot of aftermath. Go back to the episode where Sybil died. Did Julian write it? Because that was the biggest surprise ever in the Julian universe was shocking. It was Red Wedding-esque. The real Julian Sale death is Matthew's death, you know? It just happens, and then we never really get to see the aftermath. Off screen. We never get to see Mary get the news. Like, it's just like, oh, now they're in mourning next season. You know, like, yeah. I think Julian is capable of a lot, and that's why I'm hard on him. Well, and that's why we're still talking about him how many freaking episodes later. Um, by the way, I have just solved a mystery. Are you ready? Ready, everyone? Great. You heard it here first. Yes. So one of the people that's joining the cast is Laura Benanti. Oh, okay. really? Okay. Another... Broadway musical theater legend. Yes. I think, I'm almost positive she is going to be playing the hot young widow. All right. That's it. That's your prediction? That's my prediction. Right. Yeah. I'll give you credit if you're correct. I love hot young widow predictions. <laughs> what other predictions do people have? I definitely think Marion and her cousin by marriage are going to have a little thing. And I think Peggy and her man that lost her child and his wife are going to, they're going to be close to kissing at some point. So is he, but he, he would have to like move to New York to start over because he can't be in Philadelphia anymore. I could see, I could see that happening. Yeah. Love triangle between biceps and sad dad. I have a prediction that Marion is going to discover Oscar's secret. Yeah, that feels right. And she will become an ally. 
I think someone has to find out about him to make it a little more interesting, for sure. I would like it if it was someone who wasn't, I guess it wouldn't be a love interest, it would be a marriage interest. You know, I, I'm interested in a storyline with like a full-on marriage of convenience would be interesting to yeah. me. Yeah, like the woman is a lesbian. I think that would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. I want more George in his dressing gown. Take it off. Put on the dressing gown. Mm-mm. Unbutton those top three buttons. <laughs> Get comfortable. Morgan Spector is like showing up in leather pants at different events and stuff. Like he knows how hot he is in real life. Like, oh, I know. Come on. Seriously. (laughs) It's too much. Okay. I'm Googling that right now. Morgan Spencer. But I think we're excited for the season. I think we're into it. I think that we, so, you know, we talked about, we'll probably do an episode halfway through the season. And of course at the end of the season. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I have enough to say about every single episode, but we'll check check in mid-season and we'll check in at the end. And, you know, we always have to see how our predictions go. We got to keep an eye on Julian. Got to keep him in line. He's, all, he's also doing like Bill Gravy of the Next Generation or something. Like he's he's got some irons in the fire. Oh, I'm into that. Great. Uh, because that was like, that was like all about the scandal and the secrets. I also loved all the botany. Lots of good botany fruits brought from other countries i just loved it all right well we have to end our episode with one fabulous thing and i'm gonna go first because it's actually two fabulous things two of my favorite fabulous people on a podcast together which is episode seven of piece of work uh by brandy sperry which features uh miss therese schecter uh therese from toronto I just love that you guys are talking about the craft of making Teresa's documentary. Cause I, you know, Teresa, I love that you said, like you talk about the subject matter so much because you always talk about these lightning rod issues, but to actually talk about the craft is so exciting. And so everybody should listen to it. Piece of work. Episode seven. Oh, thank you so much for the shout out. Thanks Shannon. That is, this is one of my favorite podcast interviews I've ever done. Thank you, Brandy, for inviting me on it. It was so fun. I mean, the whole premise of the show is to like really dig deep on one creative project from someone. I feel like there's a lot of stuff out there that does like topic overviews or career overviews or whatever. And this is like me asking the questions that we can really nerd out about. So <laughs> I I love getting into the like super nitty gritty with people who, about how they made what they made. So thank you for coming on and thank you for the shout out, Shannon. You got it. Um, My fabulous thing is going to be um not so much the entire season of the morning show that's happening right now, but specifically 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 our man john ham on this new season of the morning show you know because we all love Mad Men here we all love our don draper and i just yeah, feel like it's one yeah. of the most fun roles i've seen him in post don draper um you know he's playing kind of a like biotech billionaire character but he has like a little more depth he's not just like an evil elon musk kind of guy there's like there's layers like that show has some ridiculous plotting but it's actually really good at giving its characters layers i think like that's why i that's why i continue watching it because every once in a while you just have these moments where these actors are really getting to chew into something that they're obviously having a great time and him and jennifer aniston are obviously having a great time on screen together they're, they're love interests i think i don't know if, if you if you like a soap there it is the morning show is there for you i'm gonna recommend uh, a documentary 
that I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival um, that will be released shortly and it will be available to watch. It's called Copa 71. And it is about a World Cup of women's soccer that took place in 1971, which is actually 20 years before pretty much everyone thinks women started playing professional soccer. So 20 years before that, there was a World Cup of soccer. It was um, teams from, I think, eight different countries, full, like massive, massive stadium, completely sold out for every game in Mexico. And once it ended, it was disappeared, deliberately erased from the history books. Wow. Because the FIFA, which is the global soccer federation, was so unhappy that women were going to be playing soccer in front of an audience and selling tickets and that it was a huge hit. They basically said that any arena or stadium that's part of FIFA that allows a women's soccer game to be held there will be kicked out of FIFA. This sounds so up my alley. Thank you. Because... I'm just like, I almost got into like a fight with an otherwise very nice Lyft driver the other day who, not the other day, it was a few weeks ago because he was dropping us off at a Dodgers game. And somehow we got into the topic of basketball rather than baseball. And he was like, kind of like slamming the WNBA and being like, oh, it's a good, it's a good sport, but they don't make any money compared to the men. And I just wanted to scream because I'm like, it's not because they can't make money. Like women's sports are purposefully suppressed by these big companies because if they made more money than the men, then we would have a problem, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And it goes back to whatever, who is that? Like the reason that women can't, can't play professional baseball is because of the pitcher who could strike out Babe Ruth way back in the day. Like, you know, I don't know. Some of these things are like apocryphal, but sounds so fucking true. <laughs> You know, like, why would you need to bar women unless you're afraid that the women are going to be better than the men? It's great just to, to know this much about the story and someone made a documentary. But what makes it even better is um, the filmmakers found tons of archival footage of these games that haven't been seen in 50 years and have many of the players who are still around in their 70s, let's say, um, interviewed modern day. And the, the, these are like really cool women who played in this World Cup. And the funniest thing about it is that like one of the players on the Italian team is still angry about something that a player did on the British team to them while they were playing. Oh, I love a grudge. Love a petty grudge. Yeah. Like they're these like really delicious petty grudges that live on, but also just hearing how magnificent it was for them to be playing soccer in front of a huge crowd. Sorry, I should be saying football, excuse me, in front of a huge crowd. Um, anyway, it's a great, it's a great documentary. What's the name of it again? It's called Copa 71. C-O-P-A 71. And it's where? Where can we watch it? I'm looking right now to see where it's coming. It It is going to be out. It's going to be widely released. Um, but I'm not finding where. It's definitely going to be streamed. You guys put a Google uh, Google News Alert for the name of that film, and it'll pop up in your inbox. We can add it to the show notes. It's great. And the best part of seeing it at a film festival was, of course, in addition to all the filmmakers, 
two of the women from the winning team were there. Okay, don't tell us which team won. I'm not. I'm not going to tell you, but two of the players were there. I will purposefully learn nothing more about this until I can actually watch the movie, and then I'll do. Then I'll go into the wormhole. Yeah, it sounds really good. That sounds good. So Copa 71. I love it. Well, this was so fun to be back in the world of Julian. You know, he's like a warm blanket. He's like a weighted blanket. He just makes us feel <laughs> comforted in this crazy world. Um, we will check back in this season about halfway through. And then, of course, at the end of the season. And thank you so much for joining us and diving deep into the world of hats and bustles and opera box wars. And we'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.